Uh, Let's pray as we prepare to open the word together. Father in heaven, long before uh, Instagram and TikTok and COVID-19, you inspired your word. By your breath, you gave this revelation that we are uh, peering into and looking at this morning. And Lord, at the moment you inspired and revealed it to us, it was potently powerful because it is your breath. After all, you've breathed this out. And it's just as potent and powerful today as it ever has been. Speaking into our contemporary situation, Lord God, you designed it that way, that thousands of years after it was inspired in an ancient society, that it would still speak potently and powerfully to our modern situation today. And I pray, Lord, that it would be potent in each of our lives today, uh, that you would come and meet us, arrest our hearts, speak to our hearts, and as Martin prayed earlier, Lord, nudge us and prompt us and motivate us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. May, not, may this not be just an intellectual exercise, Lord, but may it be a, a persuasive exercise by your Holy Spirit, persuading us to put one foot in front of the other be doers on mission for your glory and your kingdom. These things we pray in Jesus' name, and come now, Lord, and be glorified. Amen. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian man who had been a soldier in Russia's Red Army during World War II. In 1945, Solzhenitsyn was arrested for expressing criticism against the Russian leader, Joseph Stalin. And Solzhenitsyn would end up spending eight years in a Soviet prison, Soviet prison camps, doing hard labor. Later, he would write an incredibly important book about his prison years called The Gulag Archipelago, where in very strong terms in that book, he criticizes communist ideology. But in that book, Solzhenitsyn describes how, in an unexpected way, serving those eight years of hard labor, suffering as he did in those prison camps, those Soviet gulags, this ended up being a blessing in his life. In fact, it was during those years in prison that he turned away from the Marxism of his youth back to the Christianity of his childhood. And as he reflected back on the time that he spent in those Soviet gulags, Solzhenitsyn wrote this. He said, quote, I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, Bless you, prison. And then a little later, he writes this, I nourished my soul in prison, and I say without hesitation, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. You know, friends, sometimes it is by going through the hard stuff, treading through what we might call the severe mercies 
that God brings into our lives, it's in those times that our greatest growth happens in terms of character and in terms of our maturity in Christ. Fruit is born through us through the severe mercies of God. Jonah has been cast into the wild, raging sea. And the sailors have sailed the boat away. And dressed in his ancient Near Eastern uh, clothing, plunged as he has been now into the pounding waves, his lungs gasping for air, Jonah sinks down into the water into the raging sea. Jonah is drowning. He descends deeper and deeper. It gets darker and darker, colder and colder the further down that he goes. His heart and his brain now dangerously low on oxygen, about to die. And then, Jonah 1.17 a severe mercy. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, we've seen already throughout the story of Jonah, we've been tracking through it, how God is controlling the narrative. God is controlling the narrative, how God is sovereign over every single aspect of the story. And look what happens now. Now God appoints, notice the term, God appoints a great fish to swallow his prophet. A great fish. Jonah had been commanded, we remember, to go to a great fish city called Nineveh to preach against it, and Jonah had refused. So then what happened? Jonah had been thrown into what is called in the text, God's great storm. Now Jonah finds himself in God's great fish, God's great appointed fish. Severe mercy, friend. In the belly of this great fish, Jonah has a pocket of air so that he can breathe for three days and three nights. This great fish will be the vehicle that God has, is using, the, the vehicle that God has appointed to do what? To deliver Jonah onto dry land. Severe mercy. Let's try to put ourselves in Jonah's wet shoes at this point of the story. I want us to notice something rather humorous in this part of the story, and I would say tragically humorous. When God had commanded Jonah to go preach in Nineveh, Jonah, of course, had immediately disobeyed God. When God appoints this fish to swallow Jonah, the fish immediately obeys without any hesitation. And I think here there's a subtle jab in Jonah's direction. The idea is that even a big, dumb fish obeys God 
more readily than Jonah does. Well, I wonder, my friends, has God recently been nudging you, prompting you in some specific area of your life to obey him? The question is, are you going to be (laughs) fish-like, that is, unhesitating in your obedience to the Lord, or will you be Jonah-like, where you continue to resist and to run from obedience to him? I pray that the Spirit would have a word with each of us through his word today. Spirit, come and continue nudging, continue speaking to us is my prayer. Well, that's the end of chapter 1, and then now we come to chapter 2, verse 1, where there is a huge moment in the story. So far in the story, there hasn't been any record anywhere of Jonah praying. Jonah didn't pray at first when God had called him to go to Nineveh. We noticed Jonah didn't bother to talk to God in that moment. And despite his claim in 1.9 where he said, I fear Yahweh, despite his claim to fear Yahweh, Jonah hadn't prayed either when the captain of the ship had implored him to pray. But now Jonah prays. He's in the fish. Now he prays. At last, Jonah prays. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish. Now, it seems, doesn't it, that it's taken an awful lot to get Jonah to pray. A wild storm, an angry captain, lots being cast, uh, getting tossed into the sea and then sinking down into the sea, a fish coming and gobbling him up, swallowed into the fish's belly. You'd think that the one who feared Yahweh would have prayed a lot sooner and a lot more readily. But you know, sometimes it takes a lot. Sometimes it takes having all of our defenses shattered and our self-sufficiency and our strength depleted to bring us to a place where we really pray. Jonah is in the pitch black, imagine it, the pitch black belly of a fish. The fish is rolling and diving. It's heaving Jonah around. Now Jonah prays. Jonah has this little spiritual breakthrough here. He prays. Now, on the level of biblical theology, there are a couple of things that are quite interesting, I think, about Jonah's prayer. First of all, throughout the prayer, there are a host of allusions to the Psalms in this prayer. So the phrases that Jonah prays to God are coming out of the Psalms. Obviously, Jonah knew the Psalms. Jonah had memorized Many of the Psalms, of course, he doesn't have a Bible with him that he can open there in the pitch black of the, of the fish's belly. He's memorized many of the Psalms. He had recited the Psalms for many years in the worship of Israel. Now in the belly of the fish, as he experiences this angst of this severe mercy, 
Jonah can pray back the Psalms to God. And friends, there's a good lesson for us here, and I think the lesson is perfectly expressed by Richard Phillips in his commentary on Jonah. He says this, listen to this, quote, Christians who make it their practice to stroll frequently through the garden of the Psalms, I love that, to stroll frequently through the garden of the Psalms, who make a practice of singing the Psalms and committing them to memory, will be well prepared, well prepared in their hours of darkness, doubt, and despair with words fitted to their troubled situation, words designed to take their faltering faith by the hand and lead it once again to the Lord. Amen? Close quote. The Psalms, many allusions to the Psalms. And the second thing we notice about Jonah's prayer is that along with alluding so frequently to the Psalms, it also has obvious allusions, abundant connections to the story of the Red Sea, specifically in Exodus 14 and Exodus 15. So, when the Egyptian army in Exodus, when they faced their peril at the Red Sea, Yahweh had blown his wind, Exodus 15.10, just as Jonah's trouble at the sea began with the Lord hurling wind. And just as God had cast Pharaoh and his hosts into the sea, Exodus 15, verse 4, so Jonah mentions God casting him into the sea in verse 3 of his prayer. And just as the Egyptian army had gone down into the depths, Exodus 15, 5, so Jonah in his prayer mentions his going down into the water in verse 6, and he uses the language of the deep in verses 3 and 5. And just as the heart of the sea, the heart of the sea was mentioned in Exodus 15, verse 8, so it's also mentioned in Jonah's prayer in verse 3, where Jonah relates being cast into the heart of the seas. And finally, in Exodus 15, 2, the salvation, the salvation of Yahweh is featured there, just as that same salvation features in verse 9 of Jonah's prayer. And so it's almost then, these connections are fairly abundant and obvious, it's almost as if Jonah recognizes in his prayer that he's like the Egyptians in the Red Sea, experiencing God's judgment by water. But the difference between Egypt at the Exodus and Jonah here is that Jonah is going to come out of his trial by water, where the Egyptian army did not. But let's go then to the prayer itself, Jonah's prayer that he prays from the belly of the great fish. It begins at verse 2. Let's walk through this together. Now, here's what's interesting about this is that Jonah begins his prayer, notice this, by recounting an earlier prayer that he had prayed. Watch this. Jonah begins his prayer by referring to an earlier prayer that he had prayed. He's reflecting back as he prays on an earlier moment. He says, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, 
and you heard my voice. Notice how the verbs are in the past tense here. I called, past tense. He answered, past tense. I cried, you heard. So what Jonah is referring to from his position here in the fish's belly is something that happened earlier. In the recent past, Jonah describes how he'd been in the belly of Sheol, probably. This is a description of being down in the ocean depths, having sunk to the bottom after having been thrown off the ship. In that terrible moment, as Jonah was quickly, very quickly losing all of his breath, Jonah had called out, notice, finally, Jonah was calling out to his God. Are you calling out to your God in your distress? Am I? He called out to the Lord, and God had answered Jonah. God had heard Jonah's voice. How had God heard Jonah's voice and answered Jonah's desperate cry? God had sent the fish. The fish was God's answer. The fish scooped Jonah up and swallowed Jonah. All this had happened somewhere in the belly of Sheol, right there near the bottom of the sea. And then in verse 3, Jonah continues, he continues to recount that terrible moment. And here now he rewinds the tape back even further, and he goes back to the moment when he was still on the deck of the boat. He says, for you, he's speaking to the Lord, for you cast me into the deep. Now, chapter 1, verse 15 had said quite specifically that the mariners had hurled Jonah into the sea, but here at 2-3, Jonah knows who was really doing the hurling. It had been God in an ultimate sense, it had been God who had thrown Jonah overboard. Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Listen to this. All whose waves, your waves, Lord, and your billows passed over me. The waves and the billows of the raging water had been God's waves, God's billows, and Jonah knew it. There had been a definite theological significance to those giant swells in the sea. There had been a theological import to all of those white caps that were raging there, and Jonah knew it. Jonah comes very close here to an out-and-out -out confession of his sin. Jonah knew that God had created the waves, that God had orchestrated the lots, that God had thrown Jonah into the waves. Why? Because Jonah should never have been on board that ship to begin with. The waves and the billows had been a testimony of the very presence of the God that Jonah had been trying to escape. 
There is nowhere we can go to flee from the Lord's presence. The Lord is at work here in this story. He's executing this severe mercy in Jonah's life. Why? To bring Jonah back, to bring Jonah to his senses, to redeem Jonah, to use Jonah, to put Jonah back on mission. Verse 4. Then I said, Jonah, he's talking about what he said. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. So as Jonah is there struggling in the rolling waves, gasping for air, he had perceived this situation as his being driven away from God's sight. It had been Jonah, remember, who had desired to drive himself away from God. Jonah had been trying to flee the presence of the Lord, but there in the crashing waves, Jonah understood that now maybe the tables had turned in his perception. It was God who was now driving Jonah away. But even still, in that horrible situation where he was about to drown, Jonah had a glimmer of hope as he's gasping for air and the waves are pushing him under. He has a glimmer of hope, and the glimmer of hope is reflected in the second part of verse 4, Watch this, Jonah says, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Wow, so, okay, so why, we ask? As Jonah there, he's floundering in the the waves, struggling to keep his nose and his mouth above the waterline. Why would he think of God's temple in that distressing moment? Well, he thought of the temple in Jerusalem because it was in the Jerusalem temple where sacrifices were offered to forgive sinners like Jonah. Jonah knew at this moment that his last hope, as he's preparing to die, his last hope is to be forgiven by Almighty God to receive the mercy of God through those sacrificial offerings in the Jerusalem temple. As O. Palmer Robert puts it here, he says, quote, Jonah knew that his hope, his hope was at the altar of that one place on earth designated by God for the reconciliation of sinners to himself. Yes. Gurgling salt water and sinking down, about to die. Jonah's hope was, Lord, may those temple sacrifices in Jerusalem cover my sin, even as I'm being covered by your waves and your billows. And then Jonah went under. His trip down through the water to the bottom of the sea is described in verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. And these descriptions in the Hebrew specifically, they paint the picture of Jonah being smothered by the sea, of being imprisoned by the sea. He says further, weeds were wrapped about my head. Even the seaweed 
had participated in securing Jonah, binding Jonah. And this happened at the roots of the mountains, says Jonah. This is a picture of his imminent landing on the sea floor. He says, notice what he says, I went where? Down. Jonah had gone down to Joppa. Chapter 1, verse 3. Jonah had further gone down into the inner part of the ship at 1.5. Now Jonah went all the way down to the bottom of the sea. He was now at the point where he could go down no further. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is a prison description whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah perceived himself to be locked up forever now in his watery grave, condemned by God, no possibility of escape. And then, friends, (laughs) blessed redemption. Then we get the last part of verse 6. Yet, it's a blessed word in Scripture often, yet what? You brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh, my God. Do you see it? Jonah had been in utter desperation, maybe that's where where you're at right now, utter desperation, no course of action that was left to him, about to die by drowning. A rebellious prophet who had spurned God's command down as far as he could go on the seabed, no more breath, and then, and then, the mercy of God, the severe mercy of God. The great fish swam up, appointed by God, obedient to God, and it swallowed Jonah. And this is what Jonah is talking about when he says, yet you brought up, the fish comes, grabs him, starts swinging, swimming upwards. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. God brought Jonah up from the pit via the great fish. Up at last after all the downward steps in the story so far. Just as God had worked a calm sea for those pagan sailors up on the surface of the sea, now God gave mercy to a failed prophet who was dying on the seabed. The severe mercy of the great fish. As T.D. Alexander says, and I love this, Quote, when Jonah can sink no lower, the Lord intervenes to raise him upward. <laughs> oh, the undeserved mercy and grace of our God. Amen? If we are Christians, we are all beneficiaries of the undeserved grace and mercy of our God. Verse 7, 
when my life was fainting away, so when I was just about to pass out and black out because I had no oxygen and no breath available to me under the water, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. There's the temple again. And with that statement in verse 7, Jonah now ends his look backward at his trouble in the water before the fish swallowed him. Now with verses 8 and 9, Jonah is praying in the present, there in the belly of the fish, the present, and, and in the future tense from his position there in the belly of the fish. So verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, the latter part of this verse is notoriously difficult to translate from the original Hebrew. And so if you look at how various English versions have translated it, you're going to find a wide variety in English versions of a rendering here. Having looked at the details, the arguments, I won't get into the, the weeds on this, pardon the pun, <laughs> Uh, but having looked at the arguments from commentators, details, I'm inclined to prefer the Good News Bible's rendering. I think they've got it right. Those who worship worthless idols have abandoned their loyalty to you. Those who worship worthless idols have abandoned their loyalty to you, Lord. What Jonah seems to be doing here is some self-reflection. In the pitch black slime of the fish's stomach, even as the fish is heaving him around, Jonah is reflecting on his own life. Those who worship worthless idols have abandoned their loyalty to you. Jonah had exalted himself. Jonah had trusted in his own plans and obeying his own desires. Jonah had deferred to his own reasoning and had given rein to his own self-determination. God had been shoved aside. And where had that idol of self where had that idol of self brought Jonah? It had brought him down to the seabed, out of breath, wrapped in seaweed, about to die. That's where it brought him. Self had been Jonah's worthless idol through which Jonah had abandoned his loyalty to God, my friends, how easy it is for this very form of idolatry to creep into our lives. How very insidious this is and how very easy this form of idolatry can creep into our lives. The idol of self, self-determination, self-sufficiency. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. But you see, there in the severe mercy of the fish's belly, Jonah has this spiritual breakthrough where he recognizes his idolatry and where he sees where that idolatry had brought him. Verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. 
Getting back to Martin's prayer earlier, Jonah now vows here, pledges to be a doer of the word. Jonah will sacrifice, and Jonah will do that in a posture of thanksgiving, and Jonah will make good on his vows. Back at 116, the mariners had sacrificed to Yahweh, and they had made vows. And now God's prophet promises to do the same. It's like he comes in the line second after the mariners. <laughs> the mariners do it first, now Jonah promises to do the same. And then Jonah exclaims, listen to what he exclaims here. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, yes, Jonah, you speak truth. It most certainly does. Think of your own situation, Jonah. Think of where you were there. You were at the bottom of an angry sea. You had no more oxygen in your lungs. You were blacking out. You were imminently about to die, to perish. And what did you contribute, Jonah, in that moment? What did you contribute to your rescue? Absolutely zero. You contributed nothing to your salvation. It was God who appointed the fish. It was God who brought the fish. God created the fish in the first place before, beforehand. God commanded the fish to swallow you so that you could have a pocket of air inside the fish. Jonah, your salvation came from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is all of God. We contribute nothing to it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But Jonah, the question is, here's the question, Jonah. Will you allow God to exercise his sovereign will to save in the case of the Ninevites? Jonah, if you see God bringing salvation, his salvation that belongs to him, if you see him bringing that salvation to those awful people, those terrorists over in Nineveh, if you see that happening, will you still be saying at that moment, salvation belongs to the Lord? Will you be saying that in the thankful way that you are now when it relates to your own salvation? Jonah, God elected to be merciful to you in your flagrant disobedience to him. He elected to be merciful to you. He chose to save you undeservedly all by himself. Will you begrudge the salvation of the disobedient Ninevites if God chooses to save them? My friends, Jonah has indeed had a spiritual breakthrough here beneath God's breakers, inside the belly of the fish. But the question is this, how comprehensive has Jonah's breakthrough really been? How, this mountaintop experience that he's had 
ironically, at the, in the belly of a fish near the bottom of the sea, he's had this mountaintop spiritual experience. But the question is, how much deeper has Jonah's understanding of God really progressed here? Has Jonah's conception of grace widened out enough to embrace the Ninevites? The rest of the story is going to flesh out the answers to these questions. But for now, I ask you, what about us? What about us as we read the Word of God? Will we rejoice when God goes ahead and mightily saves, powerfully saves that person in our life that we can't stand? Will we be rejoicing when God blesses that person? Will we exclaim happily in that moment, Lord, the salvation that I enjoy belongs to you, and you are free to bestow that salvation on whoever you like, because, Lord, you are free, and you are good. Are we okay with God's utter sovereign freedom? Did you know that God is free? Are we okay with his utter sovereign freedom to bring blessing to people that we don't like? That's the challenge of Jonah. These are some of the uncomfortable questions that God is confronting us here with as we read this little book of Jonah. And we're going to see what happens with Jonah after his spiritual breakthrough here in chapter 2. And may God check our own hearts, check our own hearts as we see Jonah as a mirror of ourselves and our own attitudes. See, the worst thing we can do is read this story and hold Jonah at arm's length. See yourself in the character of Jonah, and I will be careful to do the same. Let Jonah humble you. Let the Lord humble you through his word. Verse 10. Watch what happens now. And the Lord spoke to who? To the fish. And it chucked up. It's one translation we could use here. It vomited Jonah out rather unceremoniously out upon the dry land. And when God speaks again, when he speaks to this big dumb fish, what happens? It obeys immediately. It obeys immediately. When God spoke to Jonah, when he told him to go to Nineveh, Jonah ran away. I think Jonah can learn a thing or two from this big dumb fish. But hey, now Jonah can breathe. Now Jonah can see daylight. Now he finds himself beached, probably trying to get his breath back to normal. He finds himself beached on dry land. We might say that fresh from his deathly experience, Jonah is now resurrected to life. And all of it has happened, friends, by the sovereign hand of God. Now, several hundred years after Jonah was spit out on the beach, Jesus was talking one day with some scribes and Pharisees, and Jesus compared his own coming death, hadn't happened yet, but he compared his own coming death with Jonah's near-death experience in the fish. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus said this, 
Just as Jonah, so now we're at the story of Jonah, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, speaking of himself, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah had spent three days and three nights in the fish. Jesus would spend three days and three nights in the tomb, or the better part of three days in the tomb. Jonah had almost died, almost died in the fish. Jesus did die on the cross. Let's talk about Jonah, Jesus, and us as we wrap this up. So in Jonah's moment of near death, Jonah had cried to God with those words, I am driven away from your sight. And yet Jonah was spared, wasn't he? Spared by God. Well, as for Jesus, in his moment of dying on the cross, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like the New Testament version of Jonah's, I am driven away from your sight. Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God did temporarily forsake his son. Why? Because our sin was laid upon Jesus so that we would not be forsaken. And God did not spare his son but gave him up for us all. After Jonah's three days in the fish's belly, the fish spat him up on the beach. Jonah was resurrected, so to say, for the rest of his earthly days so that he could complete the mission that God had called him to do. Well, after three days in the tomb, what happened? Jesus literally rose on the third day, rose from the dead, the eternal, indestructible, incorruptible, glorified, exalted, living Son of God with all authority in heaven and on earth. He rose as the victorious conqueror. Yes, he did. The victorious conqueror of death. Hallelujah and amen. As the first fruits of a wider harvest of resurrection to life for everyone who believes. See, you and I, friends, we were like Jonah, sunk down, helpless to free ourselves from our dire predicament, the situation absolutely critical, bound in our rebellion and in our sin, in desperate need of salvation from outside of our own abilities and our own powers, and at the right time, God did what? God sent his son Jesus into the world, born at the appointed time to be our Savior. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and salvation's name is is Jesus. Salvation is found in no other name but his. Jonah looked to the temple in his extremity. We look to the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who has made every temple sacrifice obsolete. We look to the crucified, risen, and soon coming Jesus. Why? Because he is our forgiveness. He is our help. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our captain. He is our friend. He is our sovereign king. All praise to Jesus. All praise to Jesus. May he continue 
to use the severe mercies that he gives and other mercies to bring each of us to full maturity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a blessed little book this book of Jonah is that you have revealed and inspired and given to us, Lord, so that we can be further chiseled, transformed into the image of your Son. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit's work today as we have listened to this word that the Holy Spirit, I trust, has come and spoken to us in our situations in different ways. Father, you are always after us, and you are always wanting to change us from glory to glory day by day. None of us have arrived. It doesn't matter who we are. Lord, we still have places to go, and we thank you for your commitment to us, your work in us, your work on us. For your glory, amen.